Mike, it's 2021. Exciting to be back here, Ed. <laughs> Feel great. Glad to be here. Uh, we uh, and not only is it November 2021, it's November 2021, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is launching the Eternals. Yeah, I'm dying to see it. I'm excited. I've been I've been such a huge fan of the Eternals. I mean, I think that I'm just curious to see what they're going to do with it and how they can kind of bring in the mythology of the Eternals into the the MCU and to see how they can maybe use that to possibly bring in other key elements of Marvel that uh, seems to be missing from the MCU. Well, so the Eternals didn't premiere until 1976. So it'll be many, mm-hmm. many, many episodes before our regular show gets to <laughs> gets to covering them. Uh, yes. And so we, we thought we'd take a little break from our regular uh, our regular material we create um, to just go and talk to some experts uh, who know a lot. So Jack Kirby was the creator of the Eternals and uh, talked to some experts who are kind of Jack Kirby experts, if you will. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to have them on the show. Um, because, uh, yeah, we, we were chatting a bit before we started, uh, recording now and, uh, the stuff that we've been talking about really has given me, me a better appreciation for Jack Kirby, even though I've, 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 I've venerated him for, for many years, but yeah, we're super excited to have, uh, Jamal Eigel and Tom Pyre on the show. Hey guys. Hey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, yeah. I, I think we, we've been billing you guys as experts and I think, I think you are. So Jamal is a, he's been writing comic books, sorry, artists for comic books for the last 30 years, artists on Supergirl. But I think most relevant here is, uh, Jamal, you were the artist for the final crisis, uh, fe- uh, some dark side features. Is that right? Yes. I, I worked on, uh, parts of final crisis for DC. And I also worked on a series called countdown to final crisis, which, uh, heavily featured the fourth world characters. And in fact, the, the one of the issues that I drew featured Darkseid as well as Desaad and Granny Goodness and some of the good ones. So. That's so amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and, and so for people that aren't aware, like J- Jack Kirby was the creator of fourth world. Yes, he created the fourth world. It, and then, he... <laughs> no, go ahead. No, no. So, so, that, so because you were working on this... Um, uh, Final Crisis stuff, and, and and you were and it was kind of leaning heavily on Fourth World. Mm-hmm. You took that as an opportunity to go and spend some time learning more about Jack Kirby. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. But it, it was sort of part of kind of like a long term re appreciation of Kirby because you know when I was a kid, I didn't get Kirby. Like I, the only Kirby that I had really seen. Um, when I first really started collecting comics was the superpowers miniseries that they did at DC. And I didn't really appreciate what Jack was doing at the time. What happened was I found later, I found a hardcover of his fighting American uh, comics and was kind of just blown away. Like it didn't seem like the same guy. So Later on, I started revisiting Kirby's fourth world work and some of the the Marvel work. And it it finally hit me what it was that Kirby was doing. This was, you know, Jack Kirby, by the time Jack Kirby got to Marvel, he'd already been 20 years into his career. So he had figured out what works for him. And he created a language, a visual language that we still steal from our, like, (laughs) <laughs> you know, superhero artists, frankly, just steal from Kirby constantly. Mm-hmm. Can you give an ex- like what's an example of that? So that language that he created. Um, there's a sense the, the sense of energy characters 
rushing forward into the panels like you know the 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 way that he draws figures there's a, a solid blockiness to the way that he draws figures that a lot of artists you know john byrne jim lee mike mignola eric larson keith giffen they're they all are the inheritors of that kirby look to his figures but there's also a sense of energy if you ever see like uh the 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 pages where there's like little black dots and floating in space and there's like crackles and stuff that is a jack kirby thing that we refer, still refer to those as kirby crackle <laughs> that that is that is a that is a kirby creation everybody uses it at some i've used it a lot you know at several points and it's jack knew how to create a grand scale that hadn't been seen in comics in general up until that point you know and it's so so it's funny you say that because like like what i respect what i love about kirby's it has that dynamism but then also has that weird cosmic stuff like it's Mm -hmm. like like the doctor strange movie or even like the guardians of the galaxy you know two seem to have that sort of just this weird trippy cosmic thing like the the idea that he's doing both i always found i found quite interesting oh yeah and but and tom could get into this uh, you know on the writing side deeply philosophical in a mm-hmm. lot of ways a lot of his stuff leaned very heavily on mythology and philosophy and it came through what did he? That, uh, that's sorry, sorry, Mike. That's I think that's a good segue because I, I don't want to yeah. keep t- uh, Tom just s- sitting there listening. Tom Payer is is also here uh, f- for this episode. He uh, he's been he he, he has a comic book writer uh, and he's been writing for over thirty years. But Tom started, well, Sir Tom. What was your f- the first comic you ever purchased? Well, actually, it was a, it was before I discovered Kirby. It was a uh, an issue of Superman that I will go back and read my whole life. And it's like to me, it's like going through the Louvre. You know, these <laughs> are the fundamental pictures in human culture. Um, it was a story called The Son of Bizarro, and it was a big, dramatic, weepy three part novel where. Uh, Ah, oh, Bizarro and Bizarro Lois had a kid, but it came a human, so they rejected it and they sent it to Earth and it got in an orphanage, but it was Supergirl's orphanage. And then she bonded with him, and then he turned in he turned into a bizarro. And <laughs> delayed reaction. And then the bizarros find out and they launch this army to like invade Earth and get the kid back. It is just, I mean, I was six years old and it was the heaviest thing. Uh. <laughs> I read when I was 30. Wow. And this, and this wasn't when you were six in the 80s, right? This was before that? <laughs> yeah, I was six like a long time ago. And the, I think the reason you can sort of call me an expert on Kirby was I discovered him in my childhood. When I was, uh, I guess I was eight, maybe, when I bought uh, Fantastic Four number uh, six. And it was a team up between... Dr. Doom and the Submariner. And I looked at the cover and I thought Dr. Doom was the Submariner because he was covered in metal like a submarine. <laughs> <laughs> so we went merrily from there. But I really loved that comic book right away. I loved it so much because I was used to, and I love old Superman comics, but I was used to, they were very still and very staid. 
and Kirby always had characters in motion because that's what a still picture lacked. You had to add motion. No one would stand up when they could be leaning forward. Nobody was sitting when they could be leaping. And he would do things over three panels, like like somebody would start a leap and it would and would they would land on the third panel. So you mm -hmm. got like a movie. I've never seen that before. And so I got way into into the Fantastic Four and early Marvel and into him. And, and, uh, and it's, so it's, I, it's, 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 I, what's exciting for us here is we have we have both an artist and, and a writer on the show. K Kirby is billed as an artist, but like. Um, like Tom, when you start think, when you think about Kirby, do you, how much do you think about the fact that he was writing and scripting these episodes? Well, the, the uh, Kirby's a great comic book writer, an absolutely great comic book writer. Grant Morrison said that in you know three hundred years, people are going to be reading him like they read William Blake now. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it because it's not it's it didn't have like the sort of slick rhythms and and obvious wit of regular writing like stanley writing but it had it, its own it just jam-packed with meaning and um uh excitement even his captions with like four exclamation points after a sentence um everything was with him whether it was a sentence or a picture everything was always exploding and so when when, when you when you think about kirby like what do you what do you think where did he where did he get this style that he developed? Like, what were his influences that led to him creating this sort of like dynamic approach to to writing and drawing, but also sort of like this uh, like I still think about the the cosmic part of Kirby and this mm. this 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 wild um, you know metaphysical you know dissertation over many different series on on uh, on what it's like to be human and also what it's like to be alive. Well, I I honestly feel like a lot of it initially was built around doing as much work as he possibly could in the fastest amount of time that he could. Because when he started out in the business, he was working for uh, Gary Iger and Will Eisner out of their studio, and they were ghosting a lot of newspaper strips back in the day. And then they, the whole studio eventually moved into doing comics um, you get around to the Marvel to you know the the 1950s when he was doing the Fighting American. I mean, these guys had to produce like in some cases five six pages a day, you know. Just you know, but that was how they weren't getting huge rates. They were doing this was before comics in itself was considered a viable way to make a living. A lot of the early comic book guys were advertising guys who were just looking to fill gaps in their, in their finances. So they were doing comics or they were, they were moonlighting doing comics at night. So I think that's where a lot of it started from. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and but I think that you know, especially once Kirby got to Marvel and started working with Stan Lee on Fantastic Four, and even before then, like you know, you know, I mean, he was basically the in-house guy. He was one of the in-house guys. He was basically they were just cranky out all these like these 50s monster stories and true romance and all the, all of those you know 
you know, the, and when he was working at, you know, what would eventually become DC comics doing like boy commandos, you know, cowboys in love or whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> they needed to do, you know, they're doing, uh, he was doing as much work as he possibly could. So what happened is if you look at his work between, I would say 1955 and 1961, he found a language for himself to work as quickly as he could, to get as much energy as he could out of the work itself. So he did, it, he did his 10,000 hours, yeah. probably his 20,000 hours, hours before he, he finally hit, he, you know, he hit his stride when he started, when in the, in the early 60s, when he started working with, uh, with Stan on the superhero on on these mainstream superhero yes. comics. So yeah, I mean, like I was saying before, like you know, the, fa the Fantastic Four, Jack Kirby is a Jack Kirby who'd already been in the business for twenty years. Yeah, and found a formula that worked. Well, could there be, and that maybe it's for people that may not, people that might be listening. I, I assume the people who listen to our podcast know know a lot about comics and a lot about know a lot about the Marvel method and Stanley. But I mean, could there have been? Marvel Comics at the begin, if there wasn't a Jack Kirby at the beginning, if it was just Stan Lee and another artist, no, couldn't have been. No, not in the same way. I, I don't think it. I agree with Tom. I don't think it would have. It would have taken off the same way without Fantastic Four number one. I think that was really sort of the the launching pad for everything else. Even Thor, like, you know, even, even though Thor came out before then, but I think Fantastic Four was really like the showcase of this is Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just got into Ultraman movies where, uh, well, Ultraman, uh, they have this home world. They're a, a giant superhero from Japan who fights big monsters. You guys know Ultraman. Mm -hmm. Sure. The, uh, in this movie, the bad guys stole, went to their planet, that's their headquarters, and stole this ball of light called the plasma spark and the whole world like iced over and all the Ultraman, all the million Ultraman were like covered in ice and Kirby was the plasma spark of Marvel. <laughs> how, I would agree how, with that. <laughs> uh, how did that work? So like, like at the beginning, I think Stan Lee was taking a lot of the credit for fantastic four, but now at least, at least now Jack Kirby is known as a co-creator how did that do you guys have any like insight in like how that co-creation worked like, like who did what to create that first issue it's 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 lost to history there are claims on both sides um the way they tended to work is they would have a conversation and stan would get maybe a germ of an idea or they would talk it out or maybe not talk it out much and then jack would go home and draw a comic book so he was responsible for the page breakdowns the story beats the page, <laughs> everything that makes it a story and not just an idea. Then they, then he would bring the pages back and Stan would write the dialogue on them, which was very good dialogue. Mm -hmm. But to say that Stan wrote the stories was a, I believe, an exaggeration. And I, believe, I, I think it's not only that he took credit, but I think he took money from Jack. Yeah, he would, he would take the full <laughs> writing. Um, pay so that that bothers me i love stan i love a lot of the things he did and a lot of things he brought to comics he's a giant but, but i mean that's nothing i would do 
do people work that way? So Tom and, and Jamal, do people work that way now? Like writers and artists work anywhere similar to the way that Jack and, and Stan did? Or, or is that like very Iraq? Like like the, the Marvel method? Kind of left in the it? path. Yeah, that Marvel method. Is anyone doing that now? Yeah, they're still they're still doing it, but it's it's much more de- it's a much more detailed method than what Stan and Jack might have done. The the even with the Marvel method, the scripts tend to be flushed out a little bit more. Um, Tom usually writes a, a full script when we're working together, so that gives me a good platform to to work off of when we're doing the wrong Earth. So, but I've worked with writers who have done the Marvel method of scripting, and it's usually there's usually a, not a it's not written the same way as a full script where you have like panel descriptions and everything else. You'll just have like a rough outline of where everything is supposed to land, and they they it gives you an opportunity to sort of riff from there. Will they will they break it into pages, or do you do that? um it depends um i kwanzaa usually lets me usually would let me break it into pages um dan jurgens does like a page by page breakdown when he does it you know and again it depends on the writer and how comfortable the writer is with the artists and you know if they know that the artist will deliver what they want Tom, Tom, what did you take from Kirby? Like, what, 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 like, is there anything specific? Like, I know that Jamal talks about his Kirby crackles. Is there anything that, like, <laughs> to your writing, like, that, that kind of you could say is, hey, that was directly inspired by Jack? Well, I think, you know, when you're young, I was, you know, eight years old when I first, when I had my first big encounter with him. When you're young, you do absorb things. And I think you don't, you absorb things without knowing it. And I think I absorbed some of the rhythm, some of the pacing of a comic that's visually based and not just, you know, characters standing there saying words. And um, that's right. I, I would say you absorb some of the bigger, like the big ideas, like the, the concept of, of like a, a grand scale also. I think that really comes through with a lot of the work that we've done together and a lot of the work that I've read of yours over the years as a fan anyway. And Kirby, like Kirby was a World War II veteran. Mm. And he, um, what like when he got to the late sixties, early seventies, he was in his fifties, and maybe I guess pushing sixty. And he, unlike a lot of people of that dis- that entire description, um, when anti-war protesters uh, were protesting Vietnam, he took their side, and you can see it in his stories. Mm. Um, it, it was a knee-jerk thing for people with war experience to think that that they were chickens and the enemy and all that stuff. But Kirby did this great New Gods comic called The Glory Boat about a, uh, a conscientious objector who turned out to be more courageous than his militaristic father. And, that, it, it, and to read that as a young person, that was that showed me that comics could be about something. So was Kirby one of the first you would consider political um, creators? Or like not the uh, first, but certainly a, 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 a like a no, influential one. The early Superman stories in 1939 were very political. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was always like beating up slum lords and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what, why? Why? Why didn't Jack get more credit? Like, what was stopping him from getting the credit that we now look at him and, and see? I I think honestly, I feel like a lot of the industry 
sort of discounted his the the actual impact that he had on them and i think that really just comes from a lot i think in the 70s there was this whole crop of new creators who came in and they were the young guys yeah they were the young guys then but it was guys like walt simonson and frank miller and you know bruce jones and mike kaluta and they were like the young guns coming in and people loved their shiny new objects so somebody like jack kirby who'd been around the business for so long wasn't considered you know hip or with it even though you know a lot of what these new young kids were coming in and doing in the 70s were based on kirby on what Kirby established and what Kirby was still doing at that point. Cause even then, like Kirby was even in the seventies, I mean, Kirby was still doing comics, you know, clearly. I mean, he created the Eternals in 76. He was doing uh, moon boy and devil dinosaur, you know, he was, you know, doing all of this stuff, but you know, I, I think it's like that shiny object idea that, you know, people were trying to move past them. And then once people, once the collector's market started to really kick in in the late 70s and the early 80s, there became a, I don't want to say renaissance, but a new appreciation for Kirby from collectors. And that sort of pushed things forward. Yeah. Also, it, I think it's relevant that for some most of the great greatest years of his career, there was a person standing next to him, mm -hmm. soaking up all the credit he could. Yeah. <laughs> and um, also, his time at Marvel, his great time at Marvel in the sixties, was bookended by two stints at DC, and both times that the the, the higher up people seemed to really be against him, and. Um, the, uh, when he did the New Gods, when he did the Fourth World stuff, they would do humiliating things like re-ink his Superman faces just mm. to call his boss, you know. And so, uh, and so they, they did. They did it what to put him in his place? Yeah, I believe it was. Yeah. Well, because they, especially back then, they had sort of a house style for Superman, like a very specific look for Superman. Yeah, I and, guess they didn't until he got there. Uh, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> um but i think um i think i think at that point i mean it was a big deal jack kirby comes to dc after this great stint at marvel it was like all right mick jagger quits the rolling stones and joins the beatles it was like that yeah. the other way around and it was like i think they were threatened by him i think cer certain powerful people there were and they they canceled the new guys before it was done mm. They, they they were insulting him constantly. Just think just think about what we missed then, right? I mean, the idea that you could oh, yeah. go, you could have his 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 creative juices kind of re-energized at a new company, and yeah. he's like hobbled right out of the gate. That's that's well, especially they here. spent years trying to get him to come over too. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the other part of it. They had a thing at DC where they have very like controlled, staid, respectable looking artwork. You know, it was like. It was like um, Jules Fiverr said, it looked like it was drawn in a bank. <laughs> Just with all the kids want, you know? <laughs> Very nice financial. There's something about the stately beauty of an early 60s Kurt Swan cover. It's all, mm. it's all fine. It's all good. But the people there were kind of limited and they took their own lessons from the Marvel mm -hmm. revolution. And, um, I heard that they actually said, 
that when they saw Jack's art at Marvel, it was so unlike theirs that the lesson they took from it was that kids want bad art. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How, how much do like Inker, like, like, because Jack, Jack was the artist, but then he had Inkers working with him. How, how much did that matter? Like the, the Inker partnerships that he had? Oh, a lot. <laughs> a lot. Well, lot. maybe for our listeners, you could, you could like expand on the relationship between an artist and an Inker and then why that would matter so much and then how, it, how you, how, how it mattered, especially with Kirby in his early days. Or at least okay. Well, Generally, the way that for those who aren't, you know, familiar with the, the process of creating comics, more often than not, because of the 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 time it takes to produce a book, we work in teams. So usually they'll have someone they'll hire someone like me as a penciler and then I'll work with an anchor and when you're looking to work with an anchor, you want someone who is going to enhance what you've already done in pencil and not destroy the, the flow of the storytelling or the overall look of the work. You know, when, whenever I've inked other people's work myself, I always kept in mind the, the, the axiom, do no harm. <laughs> right. And I, I asked for that from the people who work with me. And I've been very lucky for most of my career. I've worked with some fantastic anchors. I've worked with the same anchor for oof, almost 10 years now with uh, Juan Castro. So, but the relationship between a penciler and an anchor is vitally important, not just for the overall look of the book itself, but for the penciler's sanity and well-being <laughs> as well because a bad anchor will drive you to drink heavily <laughs> yeah. but it didn't seem to do that to kirby no 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 he, he seemed to take it in stride for the most part but and so when you say taking it in stride like he, he had some bad anchors there for a while well, that was the thing that really amazed me i mean stan lee was a great editor but uh, some of it, I mean, he didn't seem to have that much of a feeling for the actual pictures. I mean, he would put people on Stan Lee and Steve Ditko that just, it, like, it, like, uh, it looked like someone was tracing it with a Hershey bar. <laughs> and, um, then there was uh, the infamous Vince Collada, who inked a thousand Jack Kirby comics between Marvel and DC, and he would. He would just erase background details. He, he would take characters out. He would erase background details. He would, you know, lightly ink things that were important, you know, expecting them to be filled in with color. And a lot of what he was doing was because, you know, he wasn't making a lot of money, so he was making it up for in volume. Right. So he was inking a lot of stuff, not just over Jack, but over a lot of pencilers. In Vince's defense, slightly, when Jack went to DC, they told Vince, "You can have all. You can, you know, he's gonna he's gonna pencil a thousand pages, and you can ink them all, but we can't pay you that much per page." So, um, and he took the job, and his way of coping with it was to work as little as possible on them. What what uh, what influence then did, did 
I, mean, I, I presume that that pencilers now have a little more say, obviously, in in who their inkers are, I suppose, but to some degree. And like, what could Jack have done at the time if he would have recognized that his work wasn't getting the attention it needed from the inker? Like, what could he have done, or is just just wasn't his nature to kind of to 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 rock that boat? I think Jack's nature was to get angry and seethe. Oh, <laughs> I don't know how much power he would have had. Yeah. Like I indicated earlier, there were a lot of people higher up who were threatened, I believe, by his genius, and they would have been very firm with him. What would, so what, was, what point did he get? Did, did he ever get like an anchor that he deserved that, that could kind oh, of... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Model? Absolutely. There was a point where uh, he was... Uh, it switched over. The DC work, the New Gods and Jimmy Olsen and all that stuff, there came a point where he was handling everything from california and the people at dc and new york weren't touching it so he got mike royer in to ink his work very very sensitive anchor really looked like the pencils more than anyone ever yeah and uh that was great and uh, i always loved frank giacoya when he went back to marvel in the 70s to me that's my ideal kirby anchor right there because it's not not exactly what Stan did, but it tightens it up a little. Well, then, if if Kirby was was alive today and creating, what do you think he'd be working on? Like, what what would they like, given the, the 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 world that we're in and like um, the type of work that you know that he could be doing and freed from some of the shackles you're describing from his his uh, you know from his career? We'd well, have something about a plague. <laughs> <laughs> Inspired by recent events. Oh yeah, but you know, I I think personally, I think he'd probably make a killing, like crowd just crowdfunding projects, mm-hmm. and just doing whatever he wanted. You know, you know, whatever metaphysical idea popped into his head. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful thought. What do you think? When when sorry, did sorry. Jack yeah when when did Jack really get his due like he, he again he, he was really underappreciated for many many years now I think it's pretty clear that he's again he's known as the co-creator for a lot of these things when, when did that change and what what caused it to change for us to give him some res, some of the respect that that we, we think well that you guys think and we all think that he should have I think in you know by the eighties and nineties he was really really being lionized at the big conventions like San Diego and he really feel how much everybody loved him and uh, when his sort of relationships with DC and Marvel petered out uh, he was he was pulled into animation for much yeah. and I think that was probably a good thing for him and also DC. Uh, when there was a new generation running DC, like when Paul Levitz and Jeanette Kahn were in charge, they would cut deals with him that were very favorable to him. Like uh, they had him redesign the New Gods characters for a toy line so that Jack would get like a cut of the money from the toys. And I think he really appreciated that. I think he knew he was valued by them. Um, and what, why do you think that happened? Like what changed in the world that got from this place where he was given a, an anchor that was like rushing through things to the point where they were trying to give him uh, a credit on the toys and he was being lionized at conventions. I, I think a lot of it was that the kids like Tom, you know, who were six years old in the sixties grew up and started running the companies. That's exactly yeah. the companies for the first 30, 40 years were run by, 
people who wanted to make a buck. And then after that, they were run by people who wanted to make comics. Right. Hmm. What's uh, what's Jack's legacy? Everything. Oh, it's, it's huge. <laughs> there, <laughs> honestly, there, honestly, there would not be... The MCU would not look the way it does if it weren't for Jack Kirby. I mean, you know, and even I would say that in a lot of what uh, Warner Brothers is doing also, like just his fingerprints are literally all over superhero comics as they exist right now. You know, the, 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 the shadow of Kirby over superhero comics in the United States and even internationally looms very, very large. I think anytime a hero is jumping through breaking glass instead of sitting in a chair, that's Kirby's legacy. <laughs> 